This is WSFI Spotlight, a conversation with Catholics living in the light. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of WSFI Spotlight. I'm your host, Angela Tomlinson, and with me in the studio audience is Bonnie Quirk. Rosemary Simon and Ann Oakley. Our guest today is back for a, another appearance on WSFI. He's no stranger to anybody who's been following what's going on in the news with China. His name is Stephen Mosier, who is an internationally recognized authority on China and popular issues, as well as an acclaimed author and speaker. He has worked tirelessly since 1979 to fight coercive population control programs and has helped hundreds of thousands of women and families worldwide over the years. In 79, Stephen was the first American social scientist to visit mainland China. He was invited there by the Chinese government, where he had access to government documents and actually witnessed women being forced to have abortions under the new one-child policy. Mr. Mosher was a pro-choice atheist at the time, but witnessed these traumatic abortions, led him to reconsider his convictions and to eventually become a practicing Roman Catholic. Stephen, you've appeared before Congress. You're an expert on China. You're the author of many books. The most recent one is China, the Bully of Asia. So welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be here with you again. It's great to have you. So Stephen, I was looking at this letter. It was on LifeSite News about a letter that you and 69 other scientists and doctors, it was an open letter to President Trump about your recommendations for dealing with COVID-19 going forward. So I thought it would be a great opportunity for our listeners to become familiar with some of those recommendations. So first of all, let me ask you, what led you to write the letter? Well, we, we got together, put our heads together and wrote the letter because we thought that the president was getting uh, advice that uh, in some, in some, uh, to some degree lacked common sense. Uh, it lacked an understanding of, uh, of what the coronavirus was and what it was doing to, to ordinary people. And, uh, I mean, we were basically saying that, you know, this is not a health uh, versus uh, an economy, economic issue. Um, it's a health versus health issue well before anyone else was. And I think, I think we were saying that because we have included in our number, we have social scientists, we have physicians, we have medical researchers of all kinds, we have uh, other people outside the, the strict, strict virology community. And we thought some of the virologists, including the now well-known Dr. Fauci, were, were going far too far in terms of trying to uh, eliminate the virus from the population. It is true that you can kill a virus if you keep everybody inside forever and let people either fight off of the China virus uh, with their own immune system, or of course they pass away from it, and then once it's gone from the population, it's gone forever. But the cost of doing that is far too high. It's an elegant solution, but it's totally impractical. And so we made some very practical suggestions. One of our suggestions was this, that the federal government set standards on, uh, for, for uh, businesses on, on uh, social distancing because it seemed to us that a lot of the governors of the states, especially uh, the Democrat governors, were being totally irrational in what they banned and what they allowed. I mean, how can you ban uh, church gatherings and yet allow people to go into uh, stores selling pot and selling liquor in whatever numbers they choose? So these seem to us to be politically motivated decisions, and if we would simply have from the federal government some guidelines on on the number of people that, that a certain space could accommodate, regardless of whether or not they were contributing to a, uh, a Democrat political campaign, 
that we would <laughs> we would have a much sounder approach. And I think since you wrote that letter, President Trump has come out and said that religion is an essential service. Was that yes. subsequent to your letter? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we hand delivered the letter to the president. I know that he and his the the council led by Vice President uh, Mike Pence read it, took it seriously. And look, uh, for me as a as a practicing Catholic, um, religion is absolutely essential to my life. It's not something I do uh, for one hour on Sunday once a week. Uh, it's something I do every day. I, I wake up and make a morning offering. I pray before I go to bed, and I go to mass sometimes during the week. We were very blessed. I live in Ave Maria, Florida, and we were very blessed that our pastor here courageously did never never stop distributing communion. Wow. Uh, he would hold the mass inside the church, and we would watch it live stream on our televisions at home, and then we would go. he would go into the parking lot after mass and distribute communion to everybody while we maintained the standard six feet apart. So we were able to receive communion throughout the shutdown. And, and as I say, we were very blessed. Many people didn't have the opportunity to do what we were doing. No, in fact, here in the Archdiocese of Chicago, we have been locked down for, we're just going into phase three, and the entire Easter season has been without any sacraments, any sacraments at all, and no clear vision of when we may begin to get an inkling of uh, sacramental services. So you're very fortunate. Stephen, I wanted to ask you, your letter is dated May 3rd. And uh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge uh, since May 3rd. How much uh, of your letter do you think the president has incorporated as far as uh, lifting lockdowns? You know, we had riots in Chicago. Every major city had a riot. Uh, but in Chicago, they've been locked down, and she extended the lockdown. Uh, and lockdown means no beaches, no walk, no forest trails. These people are actually locked down. And, of course, with the riots, social distancing is, became a joke. I mean, uh, and now there's hardly any city left to go back to. Uh, but she's on the radio this morning talking about the virus. So uh, rather than me taking all the time, has the president expanded from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Bricks, the other side of the coin? And are there efforts at a federal level to lift lockdowns from the states that are still so severely restricted that people are committing suicide and have lost everything. Yeah, the, the, the president has been out there making making that argument, of course, from, from very early on in the uh, China virus pandemic here in the United States and, and around the world. I mean, I think he was not only the first one to stop flights from China, the only country that stopped flights earlier was Taiwan, of course, they're 90 miles away from mainland China, so they have a better handle on what's happening in communist China than, than we do, being 10,000 miles away. But And, of course, he was the first one to say and got round, roundly pummeled for it that this was a another uh, flu virus, that the ultimately the death rate from the uh, China virus was probably going to be about equivalent to that of a severe flu. 
Uh, that's a very commonsensical remark, and it's been proven now because the CDC just said the latest figure they have for the mortality rate is uh, is 0.026%, which is about that of a severe seasonal flu. So I think he sees now, and, and it certainly was encouraged by us, to regard the shutdown in uh, March and April, which is being uh, extended for no reason by governors in certain Democratic states. I think Illinois is one of them. New York is another. New Jersey is another. California is another. There's no medical reason to keep extending the lockdown. And I have to say, these people change their position uh, with the sunrise and the sunset, because when the (laughs) sun sets, apparently the idea is you no longer have to wear masks and you no longer have to worry about social distancing. You can demonstrate and, uh, and go from there and not have to worry about being arrested. But when the sun comes up, of course, everyone has to get back in the line. And, and God forbid that you as a, a runner of a hair salon or a barbershop open your doors and violate the governor's orders. It's totally hypocritical, and I think everyone now can can see that. Dr. Mosher, I just want to jump in and go back a little bit to the, and then we'll move along in your letter, but um, the, the it was reported that Dr. Fauci had an issue with the safety of receiving Holy Communion. Is that a rumor, or have you heard that yourself? Yeah, he, he said a lot of contradictory things about masks. Of course, they work, and then they don't work, and now they're just a signal that we're all behaving ourselves. But, but yeah, Dr. Fauci was raised Roman Catholic, uh, but now describes himself as a secular humanist. So I take from that description that... that uh, Uh, neither the Catholic faith nor religion in general is a central element of his life. And perhaps that leads him to say things like, it's unsafe to receive communion. Uh, We receive communion here in Ave Maria in in the hand. I prefer to receive it kneeling, of course, on the tongue, but we receive it in the hand. The priest extends his hands, drops the host gently into our hands, our our hands, and then, of course, we, we take communion. That's perfectly safe. Uh, no hands touch, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and no one here in Ave Maria that I know of has fallen ill of, uh, of anything, much less, the, uh, much less the China virus. A lot of these decisions were made on the basis of a certain inherent uh, anti-religious bias, anti-Catholic bias. I think it's clear that that, uh, the continuing lockdown is a political calculation rather than uh, based on any sort of medical science. So so just as a follow-up question, then I understood that CDC said that the coronavirus could not be transmitted through food. Yeah, generally not. So communion in and of itself could not be transmitting. I mean, we know that the body of Christ would never transmit. A virus, but for those who just for for an atheistic point of view, you know the question was whether or not by priest who has coronavirus touching the communion host and then giving it to us could they could they be transmitting the virus because could it be transmitted through food through their fingers? It, it, you sanitize yourself. Right now we have been back in our church for the last three weeks, and when we go into church, we are offered a mask, although we're not required to wear one. We sanitize our hands. And the priest does the same thing. And so his hands are are clean, touching the host, consecrating the host, and distributing communion to all of us. So there's no possibility. The virus is not on the skin. Uh, The virus is in the lungs or in the cardiovascular system. So um, even if the priest has the China virus and is asymptomatic, uh, he's not going to be transmitting it to anyone else. So again, uh, I think these are 
you know, me medical, these are anti-religious prejudices masquerading as medical advice. So there's, there's no scientific basis whatsoever in us not being able to go to Mass with social distancing, using hand sanitizer, and receiving communion. Is that correct? That's that's absolutely correct. Okay. And, and any, I mean, I think anyone who says otherwise is not relying on science or relying on their own inherent inherent biases and and as i say political political calculations mm -hmm. now one of your recommendations that caught my eye which i was interested in hearing the background of is number three the suggestion that you immediately add that president trump immediately adds a professional statistician to the covid 19 yes. team what was behind that and what problem are you trying to solve well, what was behind that was the original projections of deaths we got from a uh, University of London uh, epidemiologist by the name of Niall Ferguson. And uh, Niall Ferguson was projecting literally, you know, half million deaths in Great Britain, a couple million deaths in the United States, uh, based on a model, the code for which he refused to release. Uh, in other words, he had this secret model, and he was making these, these uh, exorbitant projections of the number of deaths and the number of illnesses around the world. And everyone, that because that was the first uh, projection out there, everyone took it very seriously and uh, acted to, to shut down entire economies on entire continents. Then finally, a couple of weeks ago, he released the code. And, 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 and we saw the code uh, for what it was. It was a childish attempt to, apparently he as an epidemiologist really never learned to code, okay? When the real statisticians on our team looked at the code, they said, this is this is nonsense. You're going to get the same wildly inflated projections, regardless of what numbers you feed into this simple um, projection done by Professor Niall Ferguson. Why is that, Dr. Moshe? What was it? What specifically in that code was flawed? Well, what specifically in the code was was they were using wildly inflated exponents, uh, not okay. taking into account the fact that as more people come down with the, the virus, you have lower transmission rates, obviously, because uh, some of the virus is being transmitted to people who've already been exposed to it and have a natural immunity that their body has developed uh, through their uh, responsible immune system. And, and there, were other, there were other problems with it. We, we normally say uh, that, a, that a flawed uh, computer projection is uh, garbage in, garbage out, Geigo. <laughs> uh, in this case, uh, it, was, it was whatever you put in, it was garbage out. <laughs> so, Dr. Mosher, could you sum up for me where you think we are right now with this virus? Where are we? We hear all kinds of different things. You know, now we've got trackers and tracers and testing and all of this. So, just kind of summarize for me where you think we are with this virus and where you think we are going. Well, I think that the virus was created by the, the Chinese Communist Party in its lab in Wuhan. Uh, it has a couple of very unusual insertions, uh, one in the, the receptor binding domain that makes it cleave very, very easily to, to human lung tissue. And, and the other um, is the use of the furin enzyme, F-U-R-I-N enzyme, that is produced by almost all human cells that it uses to cleave its way into the cell. That's why we have a virus that is not only causes a respiratory infection but causes a cardiovascular infection as well that's why we're seeing these these reports of heart attacks and strokes and blood clots from it now having said that 
we were treating it, since this was a totally unknown virus created in the lab to make it more infectious, we at the outset didn't know what we were dealing with. We were lied to by China, and then we were and had the World Health Organization repeating China's lies. So I think President Trump is absolutely correct in, in, in withdrawing from the World Health Organization because what good is a health organization that kills you? And, and effectively, they were co-conspirators with the Chinese Communist Party in spreading the virus. Okay, so that brings me to answer your question, where are we now? We understand that the reason why the death rate is so high among elderly people uh, who were put on ventilators is because we were treating it as a respiratory illness because all of the previous coronaviruses that have been known are respiratory infections. They don't infect the cardiovascular system. This infects the cardiovascular system. That means we have to treat it differently. That means that putting people on a ventilator may not be the right approach, uh, that it may make the problem worse. We're finally finding out how to treat this thing. That is going to drive the mortality rate way down. The basal mortality rate is lower. We already talked about that than we thought thought at the outset. We thought two or three percent of the people who got it were going to die. That's totally, that's 10 times. That's a factor of 10 inflated at least. And finally, we have the combination of uh, hydroxychloroquine and z and zinc, which given as a prophylactic or given very early in the illness is very effective at defeating the virus. So doing all these things together with the hydroxychloroquine, uh, which again was politicized as soon as President Trump mentioned it, everyone said, oh, it can't possibly be true. Well, it is true, and it does help. And treating it not just as a respiratory illness, but, uh, but treating it as a cardiovascular problem and protecting the elderly, especially in rest homes, because it is highly infectious. It was created by the Chinese to be highly infectious. And doing all these things, we, we can bring this thing under control, and there's no need to shut down the economy uh, any longer. That was one of your recommendations, isn't it, about the FDA updating their position on that combination of drugs, the hydroxychloroquine and the z We did an interview with a Dr. Vleet, and she was saying that for us to be able to receive the, this combination of drugs, you have to be in serious condition and hospitalized, where, as you just mentioned, the, the effectiveness of it is to catch it early on. Yes, and wherever do you find in, in the medical establishment, the recommendation uh, to withhold medicine until people are seriously ill or even at death's door. Uh, you never do that. You give the medicine as quickly as you can once you find out what the illness is. And in this case, uh, there have been, there was one, uh, I believe, uh, a politically driven study uh, that showed that if you give hydroxychloroquine, ZPAC, and zinc, to someone who's already on a respirator, already seriously ill in the hospital, it doesn't help. But that's true of almost any illness. If you wait until people are at death's door before giving the medicine, many of them are going to die. You need to give the medicine early on uh, before the disease progresses. This again is only common sense. This is what we recommended to the president as well. And a part of this, I, I have to say, is money driven. There are literally billions of dollars at stake in the development of a vaccine. There are literally billions of dollars at stake in the development of some very expensive therapeutic treatment uh, for the China virus uh, that might cost hundreds or even $1,000 a dose. And here you have a common drug that's been used safely for 70 years 
that's available generically off the shelf, there's no money in it. So there's no one to promote it, even though it works very effectively. So uh, it's it's sad that so much of uh, our medical research and some of our medical science is driven uh, by profit. But in this case, I think that's that comes through loud and clear. Well, it could even be could it even be um, a conflict of interest profit because I think something I had read yes. mentioned. Explain a little bit about how that works with patents that. For example, some of the people developing the drug could be in positions of influencing whether or not you make hydroxychloroquine available or not. Yeah, it used to be that people working at the National Institutes of Health and the National Institutes of uh, Allergy and Infectious Disease, uh, people like Dr. Anthony Fauci, could not could not apply for patents uh, for research that had been paid for by the U.S. government and developed in a government lab. Uh, that is no longer the case. In 1996, uh, a law was passed uh, allowing uh, people in Dr. Fauci's position to apply for patents. And so I think that creates a tremendous conflict of interest because I'm not accusing Dr. Fauci of anything in particular, but people in his position who have patents uh, for certain drug treatments, uh, for certain drug regimens, are in a position to profit from the advice they give in the course of their professional duties. And uh, I don't think that, uh, that, that people, I think that law should be rescinded. I don't think that people should be allowed to profit off research that has been developed by using tax dollars in uh, government labs that are paid for by tax dollars. One has to wonder, Stephen, why a protocol isn't in place to put prophylactic hydroxychloroquine into the nursing homes where the death rate is so profoundly high. Would that not be a deterrent uh, and a safety measure here uh, as in New York? Uh, they can send positive patients back to the nursing home. They just promise to isolate, but they have no standard to follow of what that isolation procedure is. Yeah, and most nursing homes aren't equipped to uh, to isolate patients in that way. Okay. They, they, they have, uh, for example, air conditioning systems that circulate air throughout the facility in most cases or at least throughout the same wing. And we do know because this was a, a, a bioengineered, the China virus was bioengineered again by, by the Chinese Communist Party in its lab in Wuhan to be highly infectious. And, and that means that it, is, it may be as much as 50 or 100 times as infectious as, as the ordinary flu. And that means that it, it's transmitted fairly easily through the air. Uh, so that if you're in a patient in one room and the return duct takes what you're, you're coughing, you're coughing, you're, you have serious uh, China virus symptoms, uh, the return duct for the AC unit will take that uh, and, and, uh, and blast it back after cooling it into all the other rooms in that wing. So we know that the virus has been transmitted in that way, or it may also be transmitted by the workers in rest homes who are not always uh, well-trained in, in, you know, cleanliness, who go in and empty the trash cans or empty the bedpans or bring the food trays or whatever, and then move again from room to room uh, without proper properly, uh, you know, sterilizing themselves and the things that they're handling in the process. So uh, we need to keep the, the, posit the COVID-19 positive patients out of contact uh, with the people who have yet to come in contact with the disease. We could save a lot of lives by doing that. 
these are these are obvious these are obvious things and put everyone on prophylactically on hydroxychloroquine ZPAC and zinc uh, zinc boost is a general booster for the immune system I uh, have people by the way take vitamin C uh, and vitamin D uh, supplements as well. That helps to bo- boost your immune system as well, helps you uh, fight off disease if you're exposed only to uh, a, a minor dose of the, the, China, uh, the China virus, uh, your body will be able to fight it off. Uh, certainly President Trump was, was wise uh, in after consulting with, with his physician, after knowing that someone in the West Wing had uh, the China virus, uh, he went on a two week regimen of uh, of uh, hydroxychloroquine for prophylactic reasons, just to protect him from possibly contracting the disease. He didn't get the disease, and so in his case, it was it was a prudent and wise thing to do. It should be a, the prudent and wise thing to do, I think, for all elderly. You mentioned that the CDC didn't have anything on their website about the role of beefing up our immune system and how important that is to avoid the disease. Could you comment on that? Yeah, the 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 uh, you know we have two two immune systems. We have the innate immune system, and then we have the the immune system that responds to uh, threats from viruses like the China virus and produces you know uh, antibodies to it and and kills it off within our bodies. And we need to boost both of those uh, to make ourselves more more resilient. It turns out that that studies have shown that that the people who died in nursing homes of the China virus. Uh, many, many of them were deficient in vitamin D. Uh, why were they deficient in vitamin D? Well, they were inside nursing homes, never got out in the sun. Uh, in you know, if you're out in the sun, your skin naturally produces a vitamin D, and didn't have enough uh, vitamin D in their in their food. Maybe they 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 didn't weren't weren't drinking enough milk, uh, eating enough cheese, whatever, and that made them more susceptible to the disease because their natural immune system was weakened. So give people vitamin C, vitamin D, and uh, zinc supplements, and let their, you know, we are wonderfully made uh, by our creator. And, and uh, if we simply treat our bodies right and, and give our bodies the right micronutrients, uh, they can handle a lot of these insults, a lot of these uh, minor exposures to infectious disease quite well. Now that leads you to the question of, you mentioned the ventilation system could be a way of spreading the disease. You mentioned that staying indoors could be a problem because of lack of vitamin D. I'm thinking to the presentation that um, Cuomo gave that showed that 66% of the deaths in uh, New York were contracted from people indoors that were being locked down. And, the, and then in addition, 18% were the nursing homes. So are we doing the right thing, making everyone stay indoors? No, I think that's exactly the wrong thing. I think the right thing would be getting out of doors, getting exercise. We know that when you're when you're uh, you're mildly ill, uh, the best thing for you to do is is get out and and take a walk. Uh, you don't have to run, right? You don't have to jog, but get out in the sunshine, get out in the fresh air, uh, get your blood moving. Uh, that moves waste products out of your out of your body and 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 helps you you know get rid of them. Um, so mild exercise is good when you're mildly ill. Getting out of doors is good. You're not breathing the same air again and again and again. Uh, in, in, especially in, in cooler weather, when, when homes are so tightly insulated these days uh, because of energy efficiency concerns, uh, you're breathing the same air again and again. The carbon dioxide levels may be slightly higher, uh, which makes your body work a little harder uh, to take in enough oxygen. 
um, and and you know you're recycling, you're breathing in uh, germs that you may have, I mean you know viruses that you may have breathed out. And other people are doing the same. So fresh air and exercise. Uh, you know what what grandma always told us to do: <laughs> go outside, and get some fresh air. Is is one of the healthiest things you can do. How about the masks? Body. How about the masks, though? This I've read a lot on both sides of the mask. There was a nurse who was saying about um, you'd be breathing in and out carbon dioxide, and it would be bad for you. And as as we're starting to open up the garden centers, the poor people that are working there, they cannot breathe. They have those masks on day in and day out in the outdoors, and yet it seems like you are recommending the wearing of masks, Doctor Moja. Tell us the pluses and minuses. Well, I mean, I'm 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 not uh, I'm agnostic on the question of mask myself. If if a mask is required to go in and and get a haircut, which I finally was able to do, <laughs> you're ahead of us. A couple, a couple of weeks ago, then I'll wear a mask in order to get a haircut. But uh, normally, normally I wouldn't wear one. I wouldn't wear one obviously at home. I wouldn't wear one walking around the lakes here. And um, I'm not required to wear one in church because we have the pews marked out, so we're sitting six feet apart. So uh, I don't wear one in, in church. I find them confining. Uh, I don't like breathing in the same air in part that I just breathed out. Um, now, now, whether or not you can activate viruses by, bringing, by breathing in some of the same air that you just breathed out or not, uh, I don't know. But I do know that uh, you know, you're, you, you're putting a little extra stress on your lungs. Your diaphragm has to work a little harder to force the air in and out through the mask. And some of the air that you're breathing in is air that you've just breathed out and it has higher levels of carbon dioxide. So it, it is a little more work. It's a little more stress on the system. The cost-benefit analysis in that seems to me to be equal out to about zero. <laughs> uh, it may help in some circumstances, uh, but in other circumstances, it's, it's probably... Uh, it's probably a detriment. Well, here's the thing. I'm always touching my face with that blessed mask because it slips. It doesn't feel right. So I normally don't touch my face. But like walking in the supermarket the other day, I was just looking at how many people have their hands now on their face because of the mask. And then there was a concern about whether or not that breathing in and out with the mask on was actually attracting the virus and having the virus attached or somehow affixed to the mask. And now they're touching that and... I don't know. Is that is that a, a fallacy, Doctor Moser? Well, I mean, I've, I've tried to uh, not touch my my face for the last three months. Um, <laughs> and I, I miss it. I miss it touching my face. But if you have a, if you have a mask on, you are constantly re- readjusting it. You're you're pushing it up, down, tightening it around your nose. So if anything is on your hands, if we're worried about hands contaminating your face, well, our hands are contaminating the mask, and then uh, from there, uh, does it does it does it uh, the airflow uh, detach the virus and then move it into our lungs? Again, these are you know, masks aren't perfect solutions uh, to the problem. I think if you're in a medical worker working with people who are seriously infected, then you have to wear them, and they offer some protection. But for the rest of us. Uh, they may be a vector for the disease instead of preventing it. They may be, uh, they may be causing it. So that's why I think Dr. Fauci, <laughs> who, who has been all over the map on the mask question, uh, said they don't help. They do help. Uh, you know, you can wear them if you want. I mean, clearly the the scientific evidence. Not everything that every scientist says is scientific. We have to understand that these are people who have very narrow specialties, and when they get outside the range of their narrow specialty, uh, they have no more uh, expertise 
uh, in general uh, than the rest of us have, and, and the rest of us are often uh, better off using our common sense than listening to experts pontificate on things about which there's no scientific evidence and about which they've never done research. Could you comment for me? I have uh, grandchildren, and, and so do Rosemary and Anne and here, uh, and I think they've been severely affected with no school, social, they're locked down, they're away from their friends, the only communication tool, unfortunately, that they have is their phone. Uh, and now there's talk of a second wave and school may not start and the riots uh, that have gone on. Uh, it seems as if their world is collapsing. Could you comment on, on common sense approach we should be taking as a society for our children? Well, I think that the, the, the lockdown has given a great impetus to homeschooling and has hopefully helped some parents to, uh, to, to attach, you know, even more strongly their children to spend more time with their children. But the social deprivation, I mean, social isolation is, is, is causes psychic trauma as well, as we well know. And to have uh, you, you to be suddenly uprooted from your circle of friends and forced to stay home all the time, forced to, uh, to only communicate by, by phone or on the computer, um, is, is a form of social isolation, which we know is not healthy. Uh, these children are going to be behind their peers uh, because they've missed out on, on now, um, you know, six months, an entire semester of schooling, uh, schooling a time that they would have learned more about reading, writing, and arithmetic. So they're going to score lower on the standardized test when it comes to that. Um, I do know that um, I have one of the people who works for me, Moonlights, um, God bless her, as a paramedic. And as soon as the lockdown began, uh, I asked her what kind of calls was she getting. I said, are you getting calls for uh, the China virus? And she said, no. She said, we're getting calls, a lot of calls for suicide attempts. And uh, that was early on, that was in March, uh, when people had just been uh, furloughed or they just lost their job and they were becoming depressed uh, because not only had they lost their job, they lost uh, intimate contact with their circle of friends. They were unable to go uh, to sporting events. They were unable to go to church. They were unable to receive the kind of, we all know how important the social support network of everyone is, especially when you're in, when you're in a health crisis, when you've lost your job, uh, when you're facing you know, a move perhaps because you can't pay your rent. And so they were deprived not only of their job and income, they were deprived of their social support network uh, to a very large degree. And I think that accounted for a lot of the suicide attempts and the rising, the rising rates of suicide itself. So there are costs to all of these things. And if we had it to do over again, uh, we wouldn't lock down. It's clear that we wouldn't do this. If we had it to do over again, we would, we would uh, protect the elderly and the rest of us would simply go about our business and the flu, we would have a flu season, a double flu season, the normal flu and the China virus, and uh, the vast majority of us would get it, mild cases and recover, and life would go on. Uh, instead, we've conducted this, this horrible uh, experiment in, in quarantining entire populations, and the cost is simply, the cost is simply too, much, too much to bear. You know, um, you mentioned about, and I'm, again, I'm going back to your letter, Dr. Moser, you mentioned about continue to exhaustively investigate the origin of 
COVID-19. What's behind that? Well, what, what's behind that is, is this is a very strange uh, coronavirus. It's coronavirus that, that has unusual insertions that we have never seen in, in other coronaviruses in our decades, uh, now two centuries of studying and isolating viruses. And we, so, so I think the evidence is clear uh, that it leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So it was a product of the Chinese Communist Party's bioweapons bio research program. And I think the evidence is also clear that it was designed to be more infectious uh, using what's known as gain of function research. Now I have to bring up Dr. Fauci again right. in this context because Dr. Right. Fauci is a great advocate of gain of function research. Gain of function means that you design, you deliberately bioengineer viruses to be more infectious and more deadly. Uh, that is to infect people at a higher rate and to have higher rates of mortality. Uh, why do you do that in the lab? You do that in the lab, Dr. Fauci and others who support gain of function research argue, you create superbugs in the lab so that you can find out what sort of therapeutic treatments are effective against those who contract the disease and what kind of vaccines might work in protecting people against contracting the disease. So in other words, you create superbugs in the lab to find defenses against them. This particular superbug is so infectious and the lab was run so poorly in Wuhan that it infected lab workers who were not following proper safety protocols. It then infected the people in the hospital who were treating the lab worker. I think we now know she died. And then from there it spread throughout the city like wildfire because as we've already discussed, it may be as much as 100 times more infectious uh, as the ordinary flu. And then of course it was deliberately seeded throughout the world by the Chinese Communist Party which decided to allow flights full of people who were ill not, not, they didn't know they were ill, of course. They were probably mostly asymptomatic carriers of the disease at that point. Allowed flights full of people who were carrying the coronavirus to fly to major cities around the world. And, and then we see the hot spots that resulted in Milan and New York and, and uh, Los Angeles and other places. So uh, that's what, that's what we, we, we need to research. We need to, to nail down all of the steps that I just outlined in order to assign responsibility uh, for this global pandemic. Uh, responsibility for the loss of life, responsibility for everyone who's fallen ill and had to miss work, responsibility for everyone who's lost a job or uh, had to close their business because of the, uh, the shutdown, and responsibility for the trillions of dollars in economic damage uh, that has been caused to the U.S. economy and probably well over $10 trillion in damage that's been caused to the global economy. And uh, China has to pay, China has to pay the butcher's bill so, because the Chinese Communist Party is responsible uh, for the origin, uh, for the leak, and for spreading the virus around the world. Uh, so we want to see a complete investigation. We're not alone in this, by the way. The Australians have called for an investigation as well. Uh, the British and the Canadians are coming on board. And I think many of the European countries as well will join us. Uh, and not to mention the countries in the less developed world, Peru, for example, uh, Brazil, uh, countries, other countries in Asia, which, is, which have seen major outbreaks. I think they're all very upset with China. This was a preventable 
uh, pandemic. It could have been prevented by stopping the bioweapons program. It could have been prevented by having proper safety protocols practiced in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It could have been prevented if we would have stopped promoting gain-of-function research back in 2000 and 2011 when certain people were strongly advocating that we continue to fund it. It could have been prevented if the World Health Organization would have done its job instead of pandering to China and serving as China's mouthpiece. I mean, there's so many points at which this was preventable uh, that it's just it's just really appalling uh, to think about uh, why we're in the situation we're in now. So I, I thought, though, I had seen that the party line is still that this was not a bioweapon, that there was no gain of function, that it natural it was a naturally evolving virus in the lab, yeah. and that there are no insertions. Yeah, well, I think that was what Fauci was saying, that there weren't any insertions. <laughs> well, uh, if I would just say that, that if I were in charge of a government institute which was funding uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I would, I, would, I would probably be inclined to rule out the possibility that it was either engineered in the lab or that it escaped from the lab. But I think, I think there's very little doubt that it escaped from the lab. And there have been a flood of papers published by Chinese researchers since January, denying in various ways at various times that this was in any way bioengineered. This flood of research uh, articles is, is, is just as deliberately engineered, I believe, as the virus itself. I believe the Chinese Communist Party has ordered uh, its virologists to pu- publish papers uh, questioning uh, the fact that, uh, that it could have been a laboratory creation and arguing for the fact that it was a product of nature. So I think that is part of a disinformation campaign. Uh, literally, the journals have been flooded with articles denying in various ways that this was in any way engineered. But I think if you look at the genetic code of the virus itself, which is, which is 29,000 nucleotides long, right? You've got four nucleotides that, that code for different uh, amino acids. If you look at this thing, uh, we've never seen in nature a virus quite like this. So the odds of it coming, you can't completely rule out the odds of it coming from nature. Nature has created some strange viruses over time. But I think the the the, the odds are, I don't know, 100 million to one that it was bioengineered in the lab. So uh, my money is on, on, we know they were doing the research. Uh, we know they were doing gain-of-function research. We know it because they published it in academic journals in 2008, in 2013, 2015, 2017. In international uh, virology journals, they were publishing articles about their gain-of-function research, about creating uh, viruses that were more infectious and more lethal. So um, they've admitted to doing it in the past. Now they're saying, nope, this isn't one of ours. I don't believe them, quite frankly, and I don't think that uh, many people in the intelligence community who are unbiased observers of the situation believe them either. Well, I think when Brett Baer came out, I think he got, you were way in front of this, uh, Dr. Moser. You were way ahead of everybody when we interviewed you a while ago. But when Brett Baer came out with the story subsequent to that, he said he made it very clear that the intelligence community was saying this was not a bio weapon, that it was simply um, a virus that was evolving in the lab. So um, I don't know if he's ever... Um, 
I think that's probably what they're getting from from the NIH. Is that what it is? Is that they're trying to stay well, consistent? Okay, let let's think about the the um, the Central Intelligence Agency, the intelligence services who are looking at this, uh, and the China experts will say. Uh, and I'm a China expert, will say, yes, the Chinese Communist Party has gone to extraordinary lengths to cover this up, even for a, a Communist Party run by um, people who are the paranoid conspiracy theorists, <laughs> which is probably describes accurately the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. The length to which they've gone to cover up uh, the, the origin and spread of this virus are extraordinary. Um, so that suggests that a cover-up is going on, and then, of course, they but they lack expertise in biology in virology. So who do the intelligence services turn to uh, for advice on on matters concerning viruses? Well, they go to the NIH. Uh, they go to the top virologists who are themselves maybe perhaps doing gain-of-function research. So again, these are not objective observers. Um, and I will, I will just say, I think that if you, if you, if you, if you don't take the advice of people who have been involved in gain-of-function research themselves, if you don't listen to what the people who are funding this research say, if you go to people who are objective, uh, like the Nobel Prize-winning uh, French virologist who looked at the genome of this China virus and said, yes, this is clearly genetically engineered. And because it's genetically engineered, uh, nature abhors uh, these these man-made tinkerings with genomes, and this thing will lose its potency quickly over time. It will mutate into something less dangerous. Uh, that's a Nobel Prize-winning, uh, you know, virologist from France who didn't get money from the NIH. Okay, uh, who's not who's not in any way complicit with this gain-of-function research. Uh, then we have a researcher in Australia who also hasn't gotten money from the National Institutes of Health or from Dr. Fauci Shop, who said, yes, I recreated uh, the China virus in the lab. It doesn't resemble anything uh, that we have ever seen in nature. Uh, it's clearly uh, genetically engineered. So if you go to people who are doing objective scientific research, who have no connection, nothing to gain, I had nothing to lose from telling the truth. Uh, I think those people, those truth tellers, are all coming down on the side uh, that that it was part of a bioweapons program. Now, I'm not saying that it was a bioweapon. I'm saying that it was part of a bioweapons research program into how to make viruses more deadly and, and more infectious, and that it leaked accidentally from the lab. I don't believe that even the Chinese Communist Party, which has tremendous disregard for human life, um, is completely oblivious to the human cost of their actions. Uh, just think about the one-child policy, for example, and the 400 million uh, unborn children who were aborted in the one-child policy. I'm not saying that, that I, I, I'm not saying they deliberately released it on their own population. I don't even think the Chinese Communist Party would do that. And I don't think that a bioweapon that, that is uh, particularly lethal to the elderly is going to be necessarily very effective on the battlefield. But what is it, was it part of their bioweapons research program? Absolutely. We know the Wuhan Institute of Virology was part of the uh, bioweapons research program. They were doing research there as part of it. There were other labs around Beijing that were doing it as well. We know that when they first had the China virus outbreak in Wuhan, who did they send down to take charge of the response to the China virus outbreak? They sent down 
uh, Major General Chun Wei, who is in charge of the People's Liberation Army bioweapons program. So um, this was this was I think one of her babies, and it got out of one of her labs. So I think the circumstantial evidence is very clear. And and people will say in response to that, well, you have no evidence that it's a bioweapon. And I only say in response to that that the evidence has already been destroyed. One of the first things that the Chinese Communist Party did in late December when they first became aware that they had an epidemic on their hands was order all the labs to destroy all the samples of the China virus, the Wuhan flu virus. Uh, what does that suggest to you? Again, that suggests the cover-up. So, Dr. Mosher, uh, it seems as if uh, Dr. Fauci and other advisors to the president are banking on a vaccine, uh, that a vaccine will be a cure-all for this uh, uh, virus, and that uh, we should not resume our normative lives until uh, we have developed this vaccine. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the development of a vaccine and uh, if they can develop it, uh, do you think it should be governmentally mandated for anybody who is in the workforce or goes to school? Yeah, let, let me let me answer the the second question first. And I, I don't I don't think that any vaccine should be should be mandated by the government. I think that when we get our flu vaccine every year, as many of us do, I do, I get it voluntarily, and I get it voluntarily because you know I'm 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 older and and I think it offers uh, the risk reward calculation for me is that there's reward in getting in getting. Uh, uh, a flu vaccine every year and the risk is relatively low but i think everyone in a free country gets to make that choice themselves now as to whether we will have a vaccine vaccines are of course the most elegant solution to defeating a virus because if you have a vaccine that is low risk and prompts your immune system to create antibodies to the virus uh, then, then you know you're you're immune. It's a very elegant solution, uh, but I would say, uh, as a caution to that, that that we have never had a successful vaccine for a coronavirus. We've never been able to develop a vaccine for SARS, uh, which has been around now for almost 20 years. So whether or not we can develop an effective vaccine for the China virus is is an open question. We're certainly going to pour a lot of money into the effort, and secondly. Uh, because this uh, China virus is, is engineered and because viruses in general mutate, since they only uh, contain a single strand of RNA, so it's highly mutable, uh, it may change, you know, there, with, by the fall there will be maybe a half a dozen different strains around. And the, the virus vaccine, if we get one, may only protect against one or two. So uh, that's another wild card in the whole situation. So I don't think we can put all of our eggs in the vaccine basket. And if a vaccine is available, and I have not yet contracted uh, the China virus by that point, uh, I will consider whether or not, whether or not to get it, um, depending on how effective it is, and depending on how the early tests come back. If a lot of people take the vaccine and then become Develop side effects. Maybe I'll pass on the vaccine and take my chances. 
but that's a decision that, that I want to be able to make. I don't want the government to make for me. How long would it take to know whether people have side effects? Well, we're doing studies now, right? We talk about stage one, stage two, stage three. Uh, in terms of vaccine trials, the first trials are done on a fairly small number of people. And if there are no obvious, um, if there's no, uh, if no one dies from the vaccine, obviously that's worst case scenario. If no one becomes seriously ill from the vaccine, if there are no serious side effects reported among a small group of 50 or 100, then you move to larger human trials of several thousand. Um, by at which point, you know, in the summer, we will know the results of those vaccine trials. And then we get to the point where we can say with, with some statistical rigor uh, how, how safe the vaccine is, what the side effects are, or what is your chance uh, in, a, in a percentage terms of developing a certain side effect. And then people will be able to decide for themselves uh, whether or not the, the risk-reward calculation in this case favors them, uh, you know, taking the vaccine, getting the vaccine, or, or not. Well, I would say you're an optimist there, uh, Stephen, because uh, in the nursing field, uh, we had mandatory flu uh, vaccine. The, the institution mandated that if you worked in the hospital, you had to receive the flu vaccine or you could resign immediately. So I would say that um, perhaps you're a little bit optimistic about the pressure that might be applied if indeed. And I have also heard that they're fast tracking many of these vaccines bypassing uh, animal testing and some in order yes. to bring it to market. So the average person doesn't know that. The average everyday person uh, in America is very vaccine oriented from their uh, small children right on up uh, through the Gardasol and, and beyond. So uh, I, I see a little bit of, uh, you're an optimist, I think I'm a realist. <laughs> I, I, I uh, have no doubt that there may be pressure if the vaccine uh, if there is a vaccine developed, and I have no doubt that it, uh, for monetary gain, there may be some fast tracking that does not have uh, what I would call ethical standards for vaccination. So, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think you're all. I, I think you're perfectly correct in all of that, and and there may be professional associations who require. Uh, nurses, as you point out, and doctors to receive the vaccine. I think we will probably see um, the vaccine offered free to everybody in the United States. Uh, I hope we don't uh, see it made mandatory, um, but but um, I hope that it's left up to individuals who are not in the medical field uh, to decide for themselves whether or not they want to be vaccinated. Um, which is the case for most Americans now. Once you get beyond the initial vaccines, uh, the childhood vac vaccinations, which are virtually mandatory in, in, in many parts of the country, uh, whether or not we vaccinate ourselves beyond that point is, um, is largely up to us. Yeah. Well, the concern was, I think Bill Gates had made the statement that he can control 15% of the world population through vaccines, which vaccines you'd think would do the opposite of controlling the world population, wouldn't they? They would preserve it. And the concern was the, you know, the tie-in there as far as, you know, what could it be? What else is, what else does that vaccine do beyond, um, 
combat the COVID-19 virus? Well, that's all always a concern. I mean, what what sort of adjuvants do you do you put in it? Um, that's why people need to educate themselves about vaccines um, in general. I think. Yes. So the last thing we're running out of time. I just want to touch on your your most interesting point to me was number ten. Thoroughly analyze the objectivity, competence, and timeliness of all major UN agencies. Over the last 25 years, we've seen the Chinese Communist Party make a uh, tremendous effort to uh, penetrate, co-opt, and control international organizations. Uh, They've become major players in all uh, the global institutions. Right now, out of the 15, out of the 15 or so um, UN agencies, uh, there are uh, Chinese com- uh, Chinese Communist Party members. Uh, uh, People's Republic of China nationals uh, in charge of four of those agencies, including, for example, the uh, the uh, the uh, international organization based in Rome, the Food and Agriculture Organization (FAO), and there are senior uh, members of um, uh, of from China in in all of the other international organizations. So we have to understand that that. Anyone who is from China who is serving in an international organization is first and foremost serving the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, There was a gentleman, just by way of example, there was a gentleman who was in charge of Interpol uh, from China uh, who refused uh, to carry out uh, apparently some of the orders that he was being given by the Chinese Communist Party to to uh, issue arrest warrants through Interpol, the international police agency, uh, for certain Chinese dissidents who were overseas. He was summoned back to China and then disappeared. He's been, he's been uh, held incommunicado in a secret jail there for the last year and a half. Oh. His wife and two small children have been given asylum in France. That is, a, that is what will happen to any Chinese official who is serving in an international organization who doesn't follow orders from Beijing. So uh, we need to find out, um, you know, who these people are, how they've compromised these organizations. Um, there is now a an effort to put a Chinese national in charge of the uh, international uh, uh, patent office, which has the details, the secret uh, information about all the patents that are being applied for around the world. Wow. If you want to make sure that China gets their hands on every new invention, uh, every new uh, development of intellectual property for which people are applying for a patent for, just put a member of the Chinese Communist Party in charge of that international organization, and those secrets will instantly go to China and uh, and cripple our high tech even more. And who's behind that? Who's behind putting China? This China's behind. Well, China. I mean, China's <laughs> made an all hands on deck effort to put their people in key positions in international organizations and they've been very effective at doing it i mean why is uh, dr tedros uh, gabrizas who's not a medical doctor at all uh why was he elected to be the head of the world health organization in 2017 he's from ethiopia he's part of the communist junta that rules that country with an iron fist ethiopia is one of the big beneficiaries of Chinese 
aid in Africa. They're a big terminus of what's called the Belt and Road Initiative. Billions of dollars have been spent in Ethiopia, and Dr. Tedros is their guy. That's why he's doing, he has been doing from the beginning of the pandemic, he's been following orders from China, even though he's not a Chinese national. He's part of, of uh, you know, the, the government of Ethiopia, which is beholden to China. And I think he just condemned, didn't they just condemn hydroxychloroquine? I think I just saw that. This, was it the World Health Organization that just came out and said that it's, um, I don't know if they said it was dangerous or ineffective. Were you aware of that? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I am, and there have been a couple of studies. If you, if, if you are a, a clever enough person, you can design a scientific study to produce whatever results you want. And we've already talked about how if you give hydroxychloroquine to someone who's at death's door, they're probably going to walk through that door. No medicine is going to do much good when you give it to someone who's already an extremist, who's already suffered, suffering from you know systemic organ failure. Uh, so that's a, a false uh, a finding that was sort of preordained by the way the study was designed and and who was allowed to participate, who was allowed to receive the, uh, the medication. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, yeah. I think we're perfectly correct in, in withdrawing the $450 million in U.S. funding from the World Health Organization. Uh, Trump, President Trump warned them on August 14th uh, that they had to uh, clean up their act, that they had to make fundamental changes at the organization. Uh, Dr. Tedros made no changes, and uh, uh, President Trump, God bless him, is a man of his word. He said, you've made no changes, you've made no effort to clean up uh, the problems of the World Health Organization, so we're going to take our $450 million and give it to organizations that actually do stop pandemics instead of organizations that help to spread them. Well, you have been tremendous, um, Dr. Mosier. Thank you so much. If you're just tuning in, you've been listening to Dr. Stephen Mosier, uh, the president of the National Population Institute. How can people follow you, Dr. Mosier? Well, our website is pop.org. That's pop.org, pop.org. And uh, if you want to learn more about China, uh, the book is Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is uh, the New Threat to the World. But Bully of Asia, we all now know who the Bully of Asia is uh, because they've affected our lives in a very in a very personal way. Thank you so much, Dr. Mosher. You've just been, um, you just have so much insight in areas. We don't, we know we are who to turn to for the truth. So that's all the time we have left. WSFI Spotlight, till we meet again. This is Angela Tomlinson, Bonnie Quirk, and Rosemary and Ian Oakley here signing off. This has been WSFI Spotlight. For more information on this or any other program, email info at WSFIRadio.com.